Welcome back to Walking Away from Arcadia. This is Simon, and Victor is also here. And today, we're going to be doing one of our Erratic As Things Happen episodes on the Changeling the Dreaming Player's Guide that, well, we just got copies of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we, we definitely got copies of it. There's no way we were going to let this pass by without picking it up, especially because as of recording, it's the last announced gaming text for Changeling. I'm hoping they announce some more, but we'll see what happens. And if this is capping off the line, hopefully by the end of the episode, we'll see what that means. Um, Yeah, Mm -hmm. so we can just dive in at the beginning, maybe with what this book is. It's weird. It's the first 20th edition line that got a player's guide. But it's kind of appropriate because the Changeling Player's Guide, the original one, was kind of a big deal. It sort of changed the game. And this Player's Guide is probably more of a traditional big box of tools Player's Guide than I've ever seen for the World of Darkness. That's its mission statement, and it just goes for it. That is what this book is. That's definitely one way to look at it. As you were talking about this being the last announced uh, official Changeling 20th book, I was just skimming through the parts I'd already read, and it is definitely a large bucket of ideas that the thread joining them is not immediately apparent. (laughs) I mean, I think the thread joining them is, hey, if you're a player and you want some background and you want to play something... Here are, here are ideas, um, and here are a set of things that might be a good starting point. The thing I thought about looking through and reading all of the sections is something that I've seen Matthew Dawkins, uh, who's the World of Darkness line developer at Onyx Path, post about, I want to say he posted about this for the first time, maybe when they did Lore of the Bloodlines, although it He may have also posted about it when they released Beckett's Jihad Diary. And that is the way he approaches writing is he wants every paragraph to have a story hook, just some story hook. It doesn't need to go anywhere. It doesn't need to be a thread that is followed continually, but something that someone will read and think, oh, well, that's cool and get their head spinning and that they might turn that into a one shot or the beginning of a a Chronicle story arc or, or whatever. And I saw those fingerprints throughout every chapter of this book. Um, it was it was very apparent to me that the writers had been given that guidance and instructed to write that way, which is kind of cool. I like that from the point of view of writing a game toolbox. It doesn't necessarily always result in a tight, coherent narrative kind of book. Like, at no point when I was reading this did I get the sort of feeling that I got when I was reading, say, War for Concordia or Kingdom of Willows. There was no chapter that came together like that. But I felt like this book was trying to be something else, and that hook in every paragraph kind of works for the big tool set approach. I don't know. What are what are your thoughts on that, Simon? I feel like the, the shotgun and hope something sticks approach can work. And it's definitely appropriate for a game about unrestrained creativity. (laughs) That's fair enough. 
So I guess we can start with the first chapter. The book starts off tackling, I'm going to very loosely say canon. Maybe story is a better description. In the introduction of the book, they just call out, hey, we're going alternate with the canon. You don't have to use any of this. Take what you want. Toss whatever you don't like away. They're they're very upfront about the fact that that's the approach they're going to be taking. And that is definitely the approach they take with story. So you start out with this sort of, I would say, political background. Um, they try to give a little bit more shape to Concordian society, the Arcadian she, the Autumn she which was needed, uh, especially after C20. That was so different than everything that had come before. There were, you know, there was some white space there. It was hard for me to wrap my head around at times because it was so different from the canon that had come before. There are a lot of cool ideas in it, but there, there were just little things. Like I'd run across things where they brought up like Machiavelli being the beginning of the unseelie. I think they, they framed it as like a certain change in the unseelie that never went away. They didn't just come out and say, this is when they became fascists, but it was kind of the implication. And I went, something about that is weird. And I went and I looked up Machiavelli and I'm like, yeah, he was alive during the Renaissance, but this is all kind of written like she unseelie. But Renaissance is when the shattering happened. And like I, I spent a few minutes trying to like make a shape out of that hook in my head with my relationship with the canon, and I, I couldn't do it. Um, that's one of the examples that sticks out the most to me. Mm-hmm. But the canon section felt like it had a lot of moments like that where like my brain tried to form it into a shape and I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of those too. And like I don't think by and large, most of them are like terrible ideas. No, like, they're they're but, cool hooks. They were just hard for me to grapple with. Yeah, like um, there was a a brief discussion about the the Sealy having to grapple with, you know, their their reputation as as tyrants and as being too interested in tradition, and how modern Sealy choose their traditions. It was that that was the moment for me where I was like, "Well, wait, what does that even look like?" Because now you've taken the core of this group and said it's individual, nobody's the same. How is it a group? Yeah, yeah, there were moments like that. Um, there were also other things that I really loved, and this kind of gets into that introduction where take what works, maybe don't take what you have what doesn't work for you in your head. But there was this one section where the Seely tell this story and it's presented as truth, but you can't take anything as truth in, in a changeling <laughs> fiction section. The Seely before the shattering went, oh, well, we need to leave not because we're cowards and we're running away from this horrible winter. We need to leave because if we leave, the commoners will rise and they will come together and and we'll come back later and it's all part of the plan and, and, mm. and we're going to help them. And I looked at that and I went, that is a fantastic lie that the Seelie would absolutely tell themselves. Read through the lens of changelings wrap themselves in stories, I love it. Uh, I would never, ever interpret it literally as written. <laughs> 
Like I couldn't, I couldn't, but I do love it as what they believe. I get that the human mind is like really, really good at holding conflicting ideas at the same time, but the resurgence makes no sense through that lens. <laughs> like why were they pissed that the commoners had learned to handle themselves when they came back? Well, and that's why I don't believe it for a second. Like, it's very much the propaganda that they tell themselves. And then later you get into other stories that contradict it. Um, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of those contradictions were intentional. All of this leads into a political framework. All of this stuff eventually makes it into the Parliament of Dreams as a playable place and they describe how to get to the parliament of dreams how people are summoned there they actually give some shape to the political structure and so in terms of the the battle of competing stories that's how i like that sort of thing i absolutely don't think there's any way to accept that story as truth and have any of the canon make sense but i can accept it as a piece of propaganda Again, it's one of those things where, like, there's nothing objectively wrong with any of the ideas in it. They're just, like, jagged teeth on two different gears not quite connecting. Because, <laughs> like, uh, one of the things they introduced was that um, the dreaming itself enforces the rules of parliament and decorum, which is a very, very pretty thought for any kind of politics. <laughs> and <laughs> that there's a referee. There are just so many moments in Changeling history where... If that were true, many things would not have occurred the way they did. On the other hand, I really like the idea that the Shadow Court has its own seat in Parliament now, because that's an interesting sort of problem for the Shadow Court and for the Seelie and Unseelie Courts to have to grapple with. To, to back up and give a, a little bit of context without giving the whole game away, um, they describe the structure of the Parliament of Dreams, and it's it's basically the English structure of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, which isn't new to this book, but they definitely describe it in much more detail. And every she house has a seat. And it largely results in gridlock because there are an equal number of sealy and unsealy houses, and they're described as largely voting along party lines. Um, they then introduce a few houses that don't vote along party lines, but they're pretty much equal. They're the same number of dissenting houses on either side, which kind of washes out. The Skaha might vote with the Unseelie, but then the Danon might vote with the Seelie just to be dicks in the day, and you still don't get anything done. And it's sort of described as the Dreaming went, all right, that's that's enough of this. I'm, I'm sick of you not getting anything done. And it just gave a seat to the Shadow Court. And the shadow court went, oh, we don't exist. What are you, what are you talking, I mean, we don't, what, what's this? This isn't, I don't know what's going on. We don't, huh? They're looking at us. I guess we should go sit in the chair? Shit. And it's an interesting situation. Um, yeah, I like the idea of, like, having to investigate, like, what they have to, what happens to them as they become more acceptable, more they have more authority. Do they take up any responsibility at all? Yeah, I I had a really hard time grokking all the Shadow Court content. Not because I 
I think it was poorly written. I actually think it was really well put together. I still like the original Shadow Court, the we wrap ourselves in banality to survive this long winter. And I know they ditched that because people have a hard time understanding how that makes any sense. I like it because that's what changelings have always done. We're true fae, and we kind of become firstborn, and oh, we need to become changelings, and oh, what's this Dantane thing? And I like the implication, like the fight of, oh no, we don't do that, that's abomination. Yeah, we've done it before, we don't want to talk about it. So like, I dig that, but I understand that it's hard to grok, and it was never really well-developed, and they went a different direction. So I kept having to like force myself to not process through that lens, because it's very much not what they've written in this book. That said, the Shadow Court section is a better Shadow Court book than the original Shadow Court book was, and it's just a chapter. Um, yeah, the entire book here <laughs> is a better Shadow Court book than the Shadow Court book was. <laughs> that is that is accurate. So it they do some things like they set up legitimate fights within the Shadow Court between the Black Court and the revolutionary justice-seeking Unseelie. They set up some really nice merits and flaws. They they play around with the nightmare. The Shadow Court section is also probably where the most changeling horror shows up. Um, this book overall reads a little more urban fantasy than most changeling books. I think largely because it's just a toolbox. BYOH, bring your own horror. But that said, the Shadow Court section has some of that. And it's more concrete, it's more straightforward political conniving, but that's accessible uh, in a way that changeling politics hasn't been previously, especially the Shadow Court has been hard for people to understand. So I think it's a pretty big victory for the game line overall, actually. Yeah, and they included some uh, abstractions you can use to make politics fit better in a dice game and make it a little bit more understandable for people at a table rather than people in a LARP. Because I always feel like politics works really well for LARP and kind of falls flat at tables. Yes. Um, there's a whole agenda system that I'm still trying to grok. Um, I don't usually make a lot of sense out of systems to like play with them for the first time. But they wrapped politics up in some system, and you know, there's some text in it saying... You know, we tried not to make this too strict. Here are kind of the frameworks you can adjust it, play what makes sense for your players. They give some high politicking examples. They give some street-level examples. It's it's a really cool tool set. Um, I'm sure when I use it, I'm going to tweak it and, and adjust it because I always do that with World of Darkness systems. But it's the first attempt I've seen at something like this, and I could actually see it being pretty useful in other World of Darkness games where you want to tackle politics. It doesn't feel like it has to be a strictly changeling thing. Right, and that's the only part where that whole section kind of was a little weak for me, because I was I was reading it and thinking, oh, this is like as close as we're going to get to shaping combat, and this is pretty close, but we're just not taking that last step. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to take that step. And and I think we're not going to take that step because a lot of players do want a more concrete experience from Changeling. I run Changeling like high-shaping combat. Like, 
she politics is high shaping combat. You're ripping apart other people's stories against their agency, and then they need to rip yours back faster to survive it. Not everyone runs changelings that way. I think it's intrinsic to the way sovereign and naming and contracts are written, but it's implicit. It's not explicit. So I don't know that they're ever going to make that leap because that forces the game into a shape that not everybody wants to play. Well, it's kind of always been in a shape not everybody wants to play. <laughs> That's um, true. <laughs> the last thing they added to the, the politics section was a a very interesting idea that doesn't really feel like it fits well, but it's one that I would totally use in an interregnum setting. Pledging the dreaming for the authority to create houses. And there's some light system around that but mostly it's story material. And like I said, I really like the idea of it. I don't know if it quite fits here. I actually think it does fit. When I read the Banner Houses section, I I get the feeling that what they wanted to do with the Banner Houses is intentionally open up spaces for players to do unique things with politics, especially at the commoner level. Banner houses are basically houses that were created independently by small groups of changelings. There was a a bit of tension around it, and a lot of the she didn't want it to happen. They didn't want them to be acknowledged. And a lot of them existed under the auspices of what they're now calling the great houses, which are the she houses everyone knows. Fiona, Gwydion, Skaha, you know, those are the great houses. And then the banner houses are like an officially recognized subdivision of those houses. And they're described as having sprung up all over the place during the interregnum. The resurgence happened, the war happened, and then they kept forming. And there was a fight in parliament and the vote happened to approve these houses and make them official. It explicitly says, there's a little sidebar where they say, you might want to know which houses voted for and against this. We are not going to tell you. Decide at your table, because that is a a political thing that will be defined by the story you want to tell. We're not giving it to you, which I respect them just putting that line in the sand. And I think it's meant so that all of those stories about I'm a commoner and like House Dougal, meh. And there's no real identity there. I'm just like, well, I serve Dougal, I guess. Meh. This gives you the chance to be, you know, that particular group of whitesmiths or, you know, that particular group of commoners that came together during the interregnum to, I don't know, whatever story you spin about the thing you smithed that saved the day in this one horrible place where a freehold was about to be destroyed and it was the founding of your house. It's a, it's a place for you to tell these really distinct, unique stories. And I think a lot of what's in here, especially all the political structure around commoners, because there's a lot of it in this book, is about if you want to play politics and you don't want to play a frickin' elf... We're going to give you a tool set to do that. I can't say that's a bad thing. I kind of like that. Um, Man, elves. uh, Yippee. (laughs) So one other thing I 
did want to call out on the politics section, and this is a little bit of a, a little bit of a personal thing that jumped out at me. They introduced all these commoner political parties and secret societies, and they're a great tool set if you want to get wrapped up in, in an identity, and this is separate from the banner houses. They introduced this political party, I think it's called A New Dream, and they're the dreams that grew out of things like the Anarchist Cookbook. They swear that every action they take in Parliament will be met with, you know, an action in the streets, an actual, you know, action in the world, but like they're anarchists. And then you get into the secret society section and the Urban Renewal League does not make an appearance. Um, it took me a while. Like I had to sit with that for a while because I am Team Urban Renewal League. I will always be Team Urban Renewal League and I am waiting for their glorious entrance into C20. I spent some time thinking about this and I think I'm probably going to write something up for, for our blog at some point. But taking that you know, a new dream group and sort of pulling the anarchy out of them, make the Urban Renewal League and make this weird relationship between this party and this more truly anarchist group on the outside, kind of the implications of you're cooperating with someone that doesn't acknowledge your authority at all, because anarchy does not acknowledge any institutional authority, certainly not the ultimate dream of institutional authority, I think would be very cool. But that's a little bit of spaghetti that just like stuck with me that needs a little bit of unraveling. Well, it's sort of, um, sorry, but listening to you talk about that, it's it reminded me a little bit of, um, God, I can't even remember the name of it, um, the IRA and the militant group that mm -hmm. was behind the IRA. Yeah, I love that story. Like, have those two groups, give them their messy relationship. They kind of tried to make them one political organization. Oh, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, like, they just made them a political party. Mm -hmm. They need to be a political party that's trying to be respectable, but wants to do right by people. And the organization that's like, I respect that you want to do right by people, but there's no legitimacy in what you're doing. I'm going right. to set this bomb because these people need to die. Like, and that's wrong, and that's terrible, and welcome to playing, like, Changeling at its horror worst. If there's no bodies, that's what there's I no want. evidence. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the Urban Renewal League is mostly red caps, and if anybody can get rid of a body, it's a red cap. Well, um... That or a, a particular puka. I mean, deer are horrific opportunistic oh. cannibals. <laughs> True. So like there's this hook here and it just it's it's a hook that I went I love that hook there but I just need to like take my forging hammer and reshape it a little just a little. <laughs> so yeah, a little more anarchy and it's a complete shape. That's fair. And you mentioned the secret societies which did not include the Urban Renewal League and one thing they did with the secret societies that I actually really liked, and I don't remember which one it was, but they started to reintroduce the political drama between Concordia's three queens and what they were doing with the power vacuum left by David. Yeah. Really, I had been kind of aching for that story to come back. Yeah, and so that gets back to sort of where the Urban Renewal League was introduced, but the story from... War for Concordia, which is still, like, I think the Player's Guide is probably my favorite 
game text so far, just in terms of game tool set. But like pure love changeling book, it's still War for Concordia. I by a mile. So I love that they did bring some of the hooks that were front and center in that book back. The other big section in this book is the world of dreams where they went through and created a smattering seems like it's the appropriate word here because they acknowledged that they weren't trying to be comprehensive but a smattering of uh, new kiths and kingdoms to fill out parts of the world outside of north america and europe and um is this a good point to bring up that thing they said they were going to do that they didn't do yeah it's probably because it's the beginning of this section where they say it um there's this really interesting piece of text uh it's very short where they say you know we thought about it we talked about it and we decided that we really don't want to live, we don't want to focus on the horrors of colonialism and violence. We really want this to be about the myths and dreams of these parts of the world. And then there is a ton of stuff about colonial violence. Um, they absolutely get into that. So it's interesting that they say that. And then, I mean, I don't want to say they, they, there are times where I, you know, I could tell when I was reading it that they were trying to focus more on just the mythology of this kingdom and creating a great mystical space. And then there were swaths of text where I'm like, oh, look, colonialism, um, which is not a complaint. I'm glad they tackled it. But it's just interesting that they said that they weren't doing it, and then they absolutely did. That is a weird thing to me, too. I'm definitely one of the people who appreciates it more when, you know, my satire parody you know let's pick this up and pick it apart and figure out what's going on and what's going wrong with the real world material actually engages with the real world i also see the point of not making the stories of parts of the world that have been colonized all about colonialism because that also diminishes the fact that these places existed before they were colonized, that they exist after they've been decolonized, that there's this huge process of decolonization and cultural reclamation involved. But we need to grapple with it, really. I think what they really probably meant with the bit of text that was saying, hey, we're not going to do this, I think what probably more they meant is we're not going to dwell on this. You know, the focus of this is going to be the mythology and, you know, this mystic dreaming fairy space and how it manifests in other cultures and beliefs. Colonialism will make an appearance because we can't erase it, but we're not going to make it front and center for everything. Um, and we're not going to make the game just about that. And I think, I think that's probably what they really meant to say. And that is absolutely the tone that's set as you go through these sections where colonialism is unavoidable and a central experience for the cultures they're talking about, it's present, but it's not the only thing they talk about. I think they set a pretty good balance. It's just not quite the balance that they say in the introduction they're going to set. Each of the parts of the world that they tackle, that they deal with outside of Concordia, and there's a section for Africa, for the Middle East, for 
South and Central America, and then for Australia, is a combination of kingdoms and then kith from those regions. And the first thing that has to be acknowledged before we even get into the, the details is this erases that little thing where the issue are the dreams of Africa, the Middle East, and India, because two of those three places now have a full set of developed kith. And just that simple thing, you know, before we get into any of the nuance of, of how well did they do with these sections, for me is a huge win. It, it lets the issue turn into something else, which I really appreciate. Um, the sections were clearly written by different people. They have kind of different tones. Um, and I read through a number of the kingdoms. I have to be honest, I didn't read every kingdom. They are plentiful and detailed and rich, and they all have their own politics. And they talk about the local fae who have political power. A couple of them even kind of have a, a dreaming-backed political structure not like the Parliament of Dreams. They're, they're very different from the Parliament of Dreams in, in structure, but, but backed and reinforced by the dreaming that way. All I can really say is if you want a different sort of setting, you can find a hook for it here. Um, if you want to get out and get away from European-centric stories, there are, there's a lot to choose from. And a lot of them have really interesting political setups for... The amount of word count they had, um, you know, the ones I read the most about were Africa. Um, I I reached a point where I realized the volume of of what was in here, and so I started skimming. But the African kingdoms are really pretty dynamic. Um, the Egyptian one, especially, is very high structural, intense political situation, which is you know not surprising for Egypt. I don't know. It's interesting. Did did any of the kingdoms particularly jump out at you, Simon? Yeah, I looked at, and this is not a great reason to look at something, but I looked at um, the section they broke into the Fertile Crescent, the Middle East, because I remember from our conversation with Salih that he, he took uh, umbrage at the Empire of Caucasus involving Turkey because they're not even geographically close at all. That's still the case in this. <laughs> so that's a thing. Otherwise, <laughs> I thought that the geographic divisions they made um, for the Fertile Crescent were interesting and close enough. The Caliphate of Cedars as Lebanon makes sense to me. I don't recognize the reference for Hayaz, so I, I guess I can't speak to whether or not that should be in the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> I did enjoy the kith there, particularly the, what did they call them? Uh, the Lilanot, because, mm -hmm. you know, as somebody who's been a mythology buff for a really long time, the first bit of non-European uh, mythology I read was Middle Eastern, and Lilith makes fun appearances. <laughs> Yeah, I I thought it was interesting that they set up the um the jinn the way they did and the the Lilanot are one of um the the jinn kith and some of the things they did there including having a bit of text acknowledging 
the non-changeling djinn because it is world of darkness and the djinn have a long history and mage of being spirits and they have a relationship with the Taftani. So there does need to be some acknowledgement there. Um, unsurprisingly, the, the fey djinn think the, the non-fey djinn are, are distant cousins because that's the approach that changelings tend to take. They think everyone everything is a distant cousin. But I liked that they acknowledged it. I liked that they had a Lilim group and then they had the Shaitan. Um, and the Shaitan are kind of wrapped up in ideas of sin. Not sin like uh, uh, someone from a more mainstream religion would call sin, but ideas of shame and sort of feeding on the things that you want but you think are forbidden. Um, I just recently watched the episode of season two of American Gods. Brief spoilers in case anyone hasn't seen it yet. One, two, three second for you to, you know, skip away. The the Jin character in in that um in that story talks about when the rise of Islam happened, you know, the jinn were all given the option you either convert to Islam or you become shaitan, you become a demon. And he chose to be a demon, and he's bitter about the whole thing very clearly. And I had just seen that. And so then when I saw that they made the shaitan not Thelane, that it is that kind of vibrant lived experience and relationship with that emotion, I thought that was an interesting choice. I mean, I'm not, I am not personally a practitioner of Islam, so my relationship with that story is an external one, but I liked that particularly. I thought it was an interesting take. The other thing from that section that stood out to me was the ghouls. They did introduce a new Thalane group, and I have never sort seen... Sort of. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, they're clearly uh, a quick derivation of um, ghasts, but it's a, it is a not insignificant derivation. In the description of their powers, they convert all damage that is not done by cold iron to bashing damage. The person I was talking to about that just kind of threw it out there, didn't say much. And I went, wait, describe how that is worded to me exactly again. And he read it again, and it is all damage that is not cold iron is converted to bashing. And I'm like, oh, your protein claws, bashing. Your Garal claws, bashing. Your ridiculous dragon's fire. Hi, I'm the Night King. Bashing. I'm like, and they, they gather in packs of 10 to 12. And I went, that might be my new favorite enemy to throw at players from the other World of Darkness games who are pissing me off. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have never seen anything quite that blanket described on an NPC template in any World of Darkness book before. <laughs> okay remind me not to piss you off <laughs> so I, yeah i mean we've talked about the middle east and the jinn some of the other kith that they introduced did some really interesting things i found the approach they took with the african kith to be really interesting um a lot of the african kith aren't really described as myths and it, it stood in stark contrast because I read the African kith and then I read the South American kith. And the South American kith are, are myths. They're very clearly, I'm a snake changer. The, the fairies that 
eat precious metals from the earth and punish humans that take too much of it. I mean, they felt like myths from these regions. Oh, the terrifying yeah. mother. I remembered her. Yeah. And, and yeah, um, I'm going to ruin this pronunciation, but La, La Llorona, um, and I recognize these stories. The African kith were almost written as a response to colonization. One of them was the kith is literally just a desire to be traditional. They are, they cling to tradition, but in a modern world, it's not, it, it wasn't written as kind of that noble savage kind of, oh, I'm, I'm XYZ traditional stuck in the old ways. They were written as a modern person in a land that isn't really theirs struggling to maintain their identity and then there was another one that was just super modern spirit of the city. And on one hand, I read it and I was kind of like grasping and struggling for the myth. I wanted a little bit more of like, what's the what's the core like changeling story that these grew out of? You know, there, there were some things about them that I struggled with, but it was very clearly an attempt to grapple with some of the identity issues I've always wanted Changeling to grapple with. So, like, I want them to get one more iteration. I want to develop them a little bit more in my head. But I really love that they tried to tackle those dynamics. The other new group that they added to the game are Playable Chimera. The group themselves go under the name of the Lycians, I think. (laughs) They're a really weird kind of mix of inanime and chimera i guess they're a little bit hard to define and i i think that's on purpose but their kiths break down along the lines of what they represent there's a group that represents undespoiled nature there's another group that represents thriving urban environments and things that humans make there's a group that represents abstract concepts and there's another group that i think was more like want than anything else but they were a little bit harder for me to kind of pin down easily i think of all the new things in this book i think this is the group i liked the most i'm gonna be i'm gonna be terrible and hopefully he won't be horribly upset with me i was chatting with the guy who wrote the lycians and he told me there was a term he had for them that he he thought of after he'd already turned this in, so it didn't appear in the book, but I really, really loved it. He described them as elementals of the Anthropocene, which I... That's pretty cool. I Yeah, I really like that term. Um, I think the thing I like the most about them is when they describe their relationships with everyone else, there's a section on the inanime... And it acknowledges that they're very much like the inanime. Uh, It doesn't kind of hide away from that. And the inanime have this view on them where it's a little bit intimidating that they exist because are the inanime being replaced because they're so similar and they're a new form of almost fey. The dreaming hasn't really produced anything big and new in a long time. And they grew out of the evanescence. They are touched by nightmare, but they aren't creatures of nightmare the way the Thalane or the Adhine are. And the inanime look at them and say, well, maybe we can teach them. Maybe we can help them not make all the mistakes we made. 
And it's a weirdly elegant, we accept that this might be our death and maybe that's okay, that on one hand runs totally counter to Changeling. Like, that's not the Changeling theme. But if anyone was going to feel that way about it, it would be an anime. And I, I kind of love that. I really liked them on my first read through. I really felt like they kind of broke down along the same lines as the mage avatar essences. And I was a little bit sad that there was no, like... They're also sort of like this thing in Vocation, the way there was for the inanime. I remember you mentioning the Avatar Essence thing, and I looked back and then I saw it. I don't know that that was intentional, but it is a really good hook, and it's something that I could see using, because they are Chimera. They have a body that's sort of like an inanime anchor. It's not exactly like an inanime anchor, and it lets them interact with the physical world, but it's one of those things where if a mortal sees their guise, I think it is. I, I might be getting the terms mixed up, but I'm pretty sure the guise is their their physical thing they're connected to, and it might be like, say, a, a soldier. And so if it's moving around a room the way a mechanized soldier would do and a mortal sees it and it just looks like, oh, that soldier's turned on and it's it's wandering around the room like a toy, they won't think anything of it. But when you're only around other creatures of the dreaming, other Lycians, other changelings, then you can just interact. It's a little bit Toy Story in that respect. But part of what I like about it is... You know, there are a lot of stories like that, and Changeling hasn't really had a great mechanism to tell them before, and some of the Lycians are elementals of really abstract concepts. They get into the kind of hard to grok, I am the ego of a concept in the world, uh, a space and the way things flow in a city, and they are manifestations of new ideas the world is so full of new ideas so it's exciting i i really yeah i i i did enjoy the i'm probably gonna butcher it the myutic um lycians the abstract idea ones that they're i don't know if it was like their stated weakness but that they have a tendency to bull through the china shop of other ideas with their idea and that they almost want to infect others with their idea. I thought that was a really good like mix of it's sort of like glamour, it's sort of like nightmare, it's sort of like banality. It's really all of those things. Yeah. Their blessing spread the meme is the power you're thinking of and it it gets into some of the raw shaping combat. Your agency is adorable, but I am not an entity that understands agency, so I'm so sorry. Let's see what happens from this conversation. It gets into some of that space, which is maybe a little more Graceful Wicked Masks than Changeling, but I like the introduction of it. They're also described as really fighting with deciding what they're going to be, because they can be Nightmare. Their relationship with Nightmare isn't about a drive into madness. They don't have a human side. They can't enter Bedlam. It's about the drive into becoming a nightmare. It talks about some of them realizing that they're a manifestation of an unsavory idea. 
and grappling with that? And do you, they just like triple down and become the unsavory idea unrepentantly or try to not be a monster? And that's, I think it's my favorite manifestation of the idea of nightmare since C20 was released. Of all the things in this book, I think the the Lycian chapter is probably the standout for me. Yeah, um, I would agree. The chapter then gets into some more traditional chimera as well and companions and building out systems and reeds. And it's useful, but the Lycians are really kind of the highlight for me. There's also a big... I don't even know what to call it. It's a grab bag appendix in this book of like equipment and treasures. They brought infusion back and tailcraft. I really love tailcraft. I read through the tailcraft powers and I compared them to what was published in the issue Kith book. And I think this version of tailcraft is an improvement in every way. It's really interesting. It it's basically shaping combat which we talked about Tailcraft in the BNS book, basically being shaping combat. I love that being in the game. Infusion, I can't lie, I've never liked Infusion. It's an art that only works with one realm. It doesn't even work with most of the levels of that one realm. I'll be honest, it, Infusion is the thing I never asked for. I want a chimerical crafting system that is not an art. I, I just want a chimerical crafting system. Yeah. Trying to force it into the shape of an art didn't make sense in the Knockerkith book. It doesn't make sense here. I don't understand why it's a thing. I don't know. I read Infusion, this version of it, and I don't know. It's just a lot of it feels redundant with other arts that do the same things better. Maybe maybe there is someone who used Infusion a lot from the Knockerkith book, and they love it, and I'm missing something. I... I never understood trying to force chimerical crafting into this shape. And so I, it never really stuck in my head that much. So I have to acknowledge that I might just not really be grokking this. That's really most of, at a high level, what's in the player's guide. There are a number of other things we couldn't get to. This is a very full, very rich book. I I cannot imagine that anyone who loves Changeling wouldn't find something in here that sparks their imagination or that they want to play. It's really not just a player's guide. All the setting information really makes it an invaluable resource for a storyteller as well to figure out where they want to set their games, how they want to build things up. It is definitely a pick and choose what you need, but I, I do think it's probably a must-have Um for someone that really wants to get deep into changeling with the C20 systems. So I hope this has been useful and that if you check this out, you enjoy the book. And this has been another episode of Walking Away from Arcadia. Thank you, Simon, as always, for recording this with me. And we uh, hope you will join us whenever we are back for our next burst out of the dreaming.
Do you want to talk about? No, I okay. do not.